Welcome to Transform, a podcast highlighting the people and ideas shaping the future of senior living. I'm Tim Regan with Senior Housing News. On today's episode, I spoke with Chris Hollister, co-founder and vice chair of Pegasus Senior Living. Based in Dallas, the company operates 37 communities in markets throughout the country. Pegasus is currently preparing for a challenging fall and winter as the industry faces a potentially dual threat from both the COVID-19 pandemic and the seasonal flu. But the company has been able to rely on expertise from its pandemic field commander, Dr. Sandy Peterson, and Hollister believes that diligence, consistency, and common sense will see the provider through any tough times ahead. Hollister, a self-described optimist, believes that there is pent-up demand and potentially good opportunities for providers that make it to the other side in good shape. But in the meantime, he says, it's all about hitting the basics. Before we get to that interview, I'd like to take a moment to highlight our SHN Architecture and Design Awards. This annual competition recognizes cutting-edge design and excellence in senior living across the U.S. and abroad. Last year, we received more than 100 entries for consideration, and we're looking to celebrate even more unique projects this year, including both new development and rehabs that are improving the lives of seniors through innovative designs. If you think you have a project that fits that description and you're looking to showcase it, visit shnawards.com. Submissions are now open. The early bird deadline is September 30, and the final entry deadline is October 31. And now, here's my interview with Chris Hollister, co-founder and vice chair of Pegasus Senior Living. Chris Hollister, thank you so much for joining me on Transform this morning. I wanted to start by talking big picture. Just in general, how has COVID-19 affected operations at Pegasus Senior Living? Well, good morning, Tim. Uh, Thank you for having me on the show. As you know, we operate 37 senior living communities across the country. So we're in a cross-section of markets from Seattle to Florida. Uh, Most of these are, uh, we we operate on behalf of uh, Welltower, our capital partner, and we have a couple of outside management contracts. I think the most challenging part of COVID has been mental health. Operationally, obviously, everyone's expenses are up. The with uh, particularly, uh, say, March through <clears throat> July, it was quite difficult to move people in. But the sense of isolation and lack of communal dining activities has made senior living a, a challenging place right now. And it's challenging for everyone. It's challenging for our residents. It's challenging for our team members. It's certainly challenging for families and just people being alone has taken a wear and tear on their psyches. And I think we've, we've tried to, to get through that as best we can and have done some innovative things I can elaborate on as we talk here. But I, I would say that mental health has actually been the hardest part of the, of the pandemic. That's something that I've heard other senior living providers describe too right now. So you mentioned some innovations. I'm very curious to hear how you all have mitigated some of these challenges. So tell me more about that. Sure. We, we have been, uh, well, we're very fortunate to have Dr. Sandy Peterson as our clinical head. And Dr. Peterson has a passion for, uh, for seniors and is a ex- recognized expert in specifically in dementia. But one thing we've done through Sandy uh, is, is work with an outside group to provide mental health services via telemedicine. It's been a very popular program. We've also tried to follow 
the rules of the law, but at the same time, try to be creative in what we can do to open things back up. One of those has been therapeutic dining, where you really just see people are losing weight or just uh, having other signs of depression that we can, in small groups, where allowed by the applicable authorities or, or laws, rather, is bring people in for small group dining with the appropriate protocols and everything else. But you, you, I think everyone's had to figure out a way to balance the risk of COVID with other risks because if people aren't moving and they're isolated, they're more likely to fall. They're more likely to lose weight due to not eating right. And so therapeutic dining has been one. We're also uh, working with a group to potentially bring in physical therapy via uh, iPad-based uh, with a, a learning algorithm that helps people get out of pain and work on their balance. It's, it's an innovative company. And uh, that's sort of in a pilot right now. But I think everybody is looking and searching for ways to get through this, keep people as healthy as we can, balance the risk of COVID with other inherent risks of being uh, uh, being isolated and, and try to move things forward as best we can. The mental health via telemedicine is very interesting to me, and it's a trend that I've noticed more senior living providers taking advantage of. How does that work? And is this for both residents and your associates, or is it more for one over the other? I think some of our residents, excuse me, employees have done it, but it's mainly for our residents. And we've, you know, we've, we've made it available. Uh, we have a contract for the group. And people sign up for it. We bring, we have iPads on site that we can bring to them. And they essentially have a counseling session one-on-one facilitated by us via iPads. Is that something you've been able to, to get reimbursed basically through like Medicare Advantage? I know that some of those rule changes and some of those allowances have made it easier to submit things like this for payment. So I'm curious, yeah, how, what is payment like for, for something like this? Yeah, I believe we are getting it reimbursed, uh, or at least, you know, putting it in for people that do have Medicare Advantage and so forth. But uh, to be honest with you, I don't have all those details in front of me, but uh, I know it's been a popular program and people have appreciated just being able to talk to someone, you know, and um, and try to go through something helpful to help them, you know, develop techniques to get through this, this period of isolation. Mm-hmm. I know that We've been talking a lot about what's been challenging in dealing with the pandemic. I want to maybe flip that question around. What's been the most rewarding thing in the past six months that you've noticed? Or is there anything that gives you hope? Or is there something that you're incredibly proud of right now? I'm very proud of the way we reacted as a company to keep people safe. And again, through Dr. Peterson, we we very quickly uh, got on top of testing and PPE. I think we were probably in the vanguard of being on the front end of that, we've had relative to over, you know, 3,000 residents. We've had a, it's always tragic, but we, and we haven't been hit very hard by COVID, even where we have had it in the buildings. We've put in protocols with deep cleaning and, you know, quarantining, isolation of people affected, staffing where you have people kind of in quadrants where you know where they've been in the building. You got to look at the HVAC systems. There's a lot of things involved in it, but, even where we've had it, we've been pretty good about keeping it at bay and, and turning it back. So I'm very proud of that. I'm an optimist, right? And, you know, in senior housing, we're, we're here, we're all here, we're all in it to make a difference. And the resiliency and dedication of our team members gives me great hope that we're going to 
get through this. And that's been the most heartwarming and, and positive thing about it. I think just seeing how incredibly committed people are and uh, working to help our residents, you know, get through this period and hopefully come out of the other side of it here. You've mentioned Dr. Peterson now a couple of times in our conversation. So for our readers at home, uh, Pegasus hired, I believe, Dr. Peterson in early February, right? Yes. And, you know, uh, my partner and our CEO, Stephen Dick and I are, are partners in Pegasus with Wellpower. And Stephen is the CEO. I'm vice chair. And Stephen has had a relationship with, with Dr. Peterson for many years with other companies. So we, when we say we hire her, I mean, she has a a uh, consulting agreement with us, but gives a huge bulk of our time to us and has spearheaded our response to COVID and as well as uh, other initiatives in terms of uh, our dementia programming and, and other aspects of resident care and monitoring, making sure we're doing a good job quality-wise. Yeah. I talked with Dr. Peterson for a story that I'm sure you remember earlier this year. I remember back then she'd kind of described her role as like a field commander. You know, she was helping to coordinate PPE shipments. She was studying lab results, you know, just working around the clock, really, is what it sounded like. That was obviously, though, I think at the height of the pandemic during March and April. Since then, has her role evolved at all or shifted? And and I guess the second part of this question is, Mm -hmm. What advantage do you think that having someone with that level of expertise brings to an organization like Pegasus? Well, I think anyone who's been at this a while, and I've been in the sector since 1986, knows it's case management writ large, where you're dealing with each person on an individual basis. I've always had a joke that you're driving an MBA crazy by putting them in senior housing because you're used to uh, sharp corners and solid numbers in other sectors that aren't so as nebulous and case-driven as our sector. So we're all, it's, it's kind of like golf. You know, you're always going to have bogeys, in my case, doubles and even triples. But this business, we're all just trying to, to play the game the best we can. You're, you're competing with yourself as much as you're, you are with other people. It's, it's, it's complicated. There's a lot of moving parts. And I think uh, Dr. Peterson, as someone who's been in this a long time as well, is very good at, at, at looking at key performance indicators and metrics, but also the people side of the business. In terms of how her role has evolved, I think as we, you know, when you probably spoke with her, we were so much in kind of at the uh, initial phase of the pandemic and getting organized, as you said, with PPE and the testing, that is more standardized now. So I think we're able, all of us, including Dr. Peterson, to focus on the business of trying to look at the programming on a daily basis. We're we're very excited about our connections program, which we, we have branded for our memory care units, of which about half our buildings have memory care. And using her theory of neuroplasticity of trying to do daily programming and just work on the business as opposed to be in sort of a crisis mode of, of getting things mobilized for the uh, for the pandemic. So I think that's been a very positive thing to be able to look at assessments, people, and programming in a more deeper way as opposed to just reacting to the pandemic. So I think that's where we are right now. I forgot to actually ask this earlier. I think I, I seem to remember reading a press release back when Dr. Peterson came aboard. She was actually originally brought on to help consult in the memory care department, wasn't she? She was originally going to spearhead this connections program, I think, before the, the pandemic disrupted everything. That's right. 
That's right. But then you get the general, you don't know what's going to happen in the war. So <laughs> roll up, up, up as, uh, as the whole, as all of us had to adapt to, to the facts. Right. Now, I know that Pegasus has focused in the past on turnarounds. I remember you and I had had a discussion, I think, last year or late the year before about sort of your your plan with turnarounds in the future. Obviously, the, the pandemic sort of has changed everything for everyone in this industry. So I guess, has the pandemic affected how you all feel about turnarounds? And also, has your experience in undertaking turnaround projects made dealing with the pandemic easier at all? I think it would be arrogant to say it's made it easier. I mean, I think uh, everyone got a bit cold cocked by this saying. I think that we have learned a lot about turnarounds. I mean, we've always known it's about the people. I think the challenge Pegasus has had is that we're so geographically diverse, but kind of thinly, right? As opposed to, you know, Brookdale or Sunrise that have depth of operations in markets across the country. We have, you know, seven communities in the Pacific Northwest and six in California. I think we've learned that we need to have smaller regions to give regional people more time to focus. And these are, you know, 15, 20-year-old buildings. We've learned about how to do CapEx, how to look at a whole comprehensive plan. And we've learned that there's challenges. I I think uh, some of these markets are still quite challenged. In Atlanta, Denver specifically would be two that I would highlight as being quite overbuilt, but but I, I think the industry is still going to go through a tough time, Tim, and I've been um, fairly vocal about the fact that I think there was ha- has just been the almost irrational exuberance over the last few years with so many new people getting into the sector, so, many, so much new construction, and still using demographics based on people age 75 plus, that uh, there is a lot of overbuilding. I think with the pandemic, I think we were going to go through a tough time anyway with turnarounds and and deals not working or not working to the satisfaction of their sponsors. And I think the pandemic is going to exacerbate that. And for the next, really till 2022, I think we're going to be going through a period of of quite a few workouts. But But those workouts have opportunities. I think we'll try to be selective. I mean, we have plenty to do right now with our current portfolio with Well Tower and Well Tower brought us to the dance and we want to make sure we complete that mission. But at the same time, uh, we, you know, with them, we, we would love to be able to look at other opportunities at some point. I think we're, we're probably, you know, six, at least six months away from looking at any major just, in, and that would depend on how the next phase of the pandemic goes. Oh, absolutely. I think I, I also remember seeing a press release recently about uh, Pegasus taking on a new community to manage. I think it was actually just earlier this week or, or last week that I saw this. You know, t- time time is kind of uh, malleable with the pandemic. It feels like uh, everything is both 10 seconds and 10 years long. So I apologize for not remembering exactly when that came out. But can uh, I guess uh, my question is, can you talk about how you see the company growing in the months ahead and how you foresee COVID-19 changing those plans at all? I think, I mean, we're looking at a couple of management contracts right now. Uh, Stephen and I have always thought of ourselves as principals and entrepreneurs, and we don't necessarily want to go just manage just for the sake of managing. We'd like to have a promoter, a structure that makes sense for us. And I think the pandemic, as I said a moment ago, I think it's going to exacerbate the the depth of kind of the workout in some of these overbuilt markets. I think you've got to be very, very careful 
And first, we got to see where the pandemic is going, where there's clarity with a vaccine and testing and other protocols and other hopefully positive developments. And then I, I think we would be poised to perhaps look at something, you know, mid next year into 2022. Seems crazy to talk about 2022. 2020's been the longest year of my life. <laughs> I think a lot of people feel that way. But time marches on, and I do think there's positive things happening on the uh, vaccine front and on the testing front. So, um, if anything, I think the pandemic has brought, will bring greater opportunities for people that have. Uh, the team and the, and the skill and, and the, the depth of resources to take on new challenges. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And that, that, that is exactly how I feel that this year has been the longest year I think I've ever <laughs> experienced. So with regard to the pandemic, a lot of senior living providers seem to be sort of girding themselves for what comes in the fall. On the one hand, it seems like providers might be better prepared to handle uh, both the pandemic and a potential flu season at the same time, given all the new experience the industry has gained on infection control. On the other hand, another spike in outbreaks coupled with even a, a normal flu season, I think, could hit the industry pretty hard. And I know all this is hard to predict, but how is Pegasus preparing for the fall and what do you expect to see? Well, that's a big question. I mean, again, I'm an eternal optimist. Hope it's coupled, hopefully, uh, with with realism. I think it could be quite a challenging winter. So, one thing we're doing is just first of all, as we do every year, but even with more diligence, perhaps this year is making sure everybody gets their flu shot. So, we're putting that in place, trying to stay diligent on the basics. This this business is all about, like I said, it's like golf. It's about doing the basics, doing the same. Swing every time, trying to be consistent with what you're doing. There's no, there's no substitute for that. I do think the whole industry in the world has learned that a modicum of common sense and consistency goes a long way. If everyone wears a mask, washes their hands, don't touch your face, and stay six feet apart, this thing can't really grow. And I, you know, you can get into all these complicated rules and shut everything down. But we have to figure out a way as a society and as a world and as an industry to go forward and and use common sense and and just be uh, brilliant on the basics, as my partner Stephen Dick says, and and have everybody doing the same thing. You know, two or three people not wearing a mask, two or three people going to a big party that were coming into your building can do a whole lot of damage. So there's no substitute for consistency. There's some positive things happening on the testing front. There's this new Abbott test that... uh, as I understand it, could be a, a, perhaps not a game changer, but a very positive thing where we're able to get instantaneous results with 97% accuracy. On this is the antigen, has the, right. the antigen. That's right. That's right. Okay. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the vaccine, I'm, I'm more realistic. I, I don't think, I think there's a, I, I, the, the number I heard is 130 groups working on a vaccine. It's like that many shots on goal someone's going to have a breakthrough, and maybe two or three. And I know the U.S. government is already producing this in mass quantities of all of three or four of the leading ones so that if one of them does show it works, they're ready to go with it. System living, I'm sure, is going to be prioritized on that. So I certainly think by the spring there's going to be pretty good, maybe not 50-50, but, but, but there's optimism that there's going to be vaccines available by then. Getting through, say, November to April then becomes 
the 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 crux of the of the of the issue, and that's that's the bridge we have to cross. And hopefully, we can have protocols as an industry and at Pegasus to mitigate any any spread within these buildings. Memory care is clearly the the, the most challenging, the most vulnerable people. And independent living is less so, but they're also more mobile, so people can decide to move home. And we've certainly seen that, as I'm sure a lot of my colleagues have. But again, I, and I'm, I mean, I'm not, hopefully I'm not babbling, but I, I, I was talking to a, a colleague yesterday about her experience. And, you know, even with the fact that communal dining is not robust or even available in some markets, even with activities being curtailed, people still want and need senior living. And people get to the point where they're also isolated in their home. I mean, I was talking to a, a friend, another friend in the industry, and said they're opening two new ILs, and they've had like 50 move-ins in both of them in the last three months. So I think there is demand. I think it has been, it's bottled up, but it, it, it's going to start coming forth. And, and I'm hopeful if we get a vaccine, that this, things will start turning up here, certainly in, in the new year at some point. Move-ins is something that we have not talked about today, but I wanted to talk about. It seems like maintaining move-ins during partial or full lockdowns, that seems to be the key to maybe maintaining your occupancy and therefore revenue during uh, the pandemic. Obviously, though, move-ins are are one of the most challenged parts of the business right now. So can you tell me what you see as the key to keeping move-ins at a sustainable level during all of this? I mean, what, what can you do operationally to maintain the flow of leads and movements? Well, that, that's a great question, Tim. And obviously, everyone is trying to do things virtually. And, and there'll be things we learn from this that will, that will go on beyond COVID, even in how we work and being able to do Zoom meetings. I've been kind of, uh, just as a side, blown away how effective Zoom meetings are. And with my old eyes, I can see the board better on a Zoom call than I can when I'm in the room, unless I get lucky and get to see that by the board. And people, uh, I think in the first few months, March to June, the main thing you had to sell about was fear. And people want to know what your protocols were. That's still there. But I think fear has abated and it's become more about logistics. It's like, yeah, we have had mom here. We're going back to work. We know we need to do something. Tell me about your protocols, but as the industry's learned, most people are pretty good at that now. It's logistics. How can I see the unit? So we've tried to fit in models that are accessible from an outside window if, if, if inside tours aren't available, where they can walk up close to the building, come into a courtyard. And in some instances, in some states, you know, you lock that unit, you deep clean it, you let people go in it before they make the decision, but they're allowed to actually see the unit. The social media has always been important. It's getting more important. Testimonials of people who've made the decision and to get videos of them done to where people in similar circumstances can kind of say, wow, well, if they got over this bridge of fear, I should be able to do it. I just need to go see the unit now. How can I see a unit? So anyway, that, those are some of the things we've tried to focus on. I know a lot of my colleagues, our colleagues are, are, are trying to do the same. I know before the pandemic, the industry put a lot of thought into what the baby boomers are going to want. Obviously, the, the pandemic, I think, has changed a lot of those expectations, especially with regard to things like hospitality and socialization and lifestyle amenities. My question for you is, how do you think this pandemic 
could affect the preferences of the baby boomers in the future? Obviously, that seems to be sort of the $10,000 question, but I'm curious to hear what you think. Yeah, that is that is the big question, right? I know uh, our friend and visionary Bob Kramer has put a lot of thought into that and this idea that the baby boomers are going to want to go back to kind of like a commune or a smaller setting or something that they actually control and run. That's a big question. The middle market and affordability is a big question. I think modular housing and lower cost construction techniques are going to be something that are going to come into vogue. I think co-ops or other forms, particularly on the IL side, could be something that that gains traction. As you know, I shared with you offline of uh, my family situation of trying to find a placement for my father who has uh, not Alzheimer's, but dementia, and and is now getting more physically weak and really getting to where my mom can't take care of him. And we're really looking at a, a small board and care home so not to be a traitor to my my assisted living brethren, but it lowers the risk of COVID. It's less expensive. And I had a local referral source here who's sort of a local place for mom vet several of these places and found the best one run by an RN. And, you know, for our family and, and uh, affordability and access and being able to visit him and everything else, that option is pretty appealing. And uh, it's that's been a bit of an eye opener, as I shared with you. Of just you know, what's our value proposition, and how can we compete with that? How can we make sure that we're as affordable as possible? And um, I think all of those things, small scale control input from the residents, innovative hospitality, a focus on nutrition and physical activity. I really think, we really think life enrichment is a key that can be a differentiator and that people want to be more active and nothing against bingo or whatever, but that you need life enrichment directors that are a little more on their game. It's probably a position that needs to be paid more, that needs to be vetted more carefully and can really be a driver as we move into people that do care more about, you know, lifestyle and staying active and healthy and those kind of things that are important to baby boomers. You had, you had joked about being a traitor to the, to your assisted living peers, which I thought was funny. But do you think there's a way to marry the two models, assist, you know, traditional assisted living and then maybe some of this more boarding care home or small house model stuff? I've talked with some providers who think that in the future, there are perhaps ways to, to combine both into kind of a hybrid model. But do you, do you think that would work? And what do you think that might look like? Yeah, I way back in the 90s had a community that was just, that had a bunch of uh, essentially cottages on the campus. And, and you know, we're, we're essentially like 10 board and care homes on one campus within a separate building. You run into issues with, with just walking distances. You run into efficiencies. It's less efficient in, in most ways. So you know, I think you know modular construction. Even if you even if you build it less expensively, you still have higher operating costs. And as labor goes up, you know, if you're gonna, if your margin is going to go down from, you know, back in the day we were you know, we were trying to get to forty percent margins after management fees. And in some markets we still can, but certainly there's been margin compression, particularly as minimum wages has gone up, labor rates have gone up, and so forth. So. You know, this is a complex topic, and there's going to be a lot of people trying a lot of different things. I think it's probably more 
at this point, 2023 and later, when you start seeing that, I think we're going to go through a tough couple of years here as a sector. And I compare it uh, in a way to a forest fire. I mean, I think there's going to be a lot of hopefully, you know, since the projects on the drawing books, on the drawing boards rather, that may not go forward. There's going to be new owners on a certain number of buildings already in existence. So I think we got to get through the next couple of years and heal as an industry. And then hopefully some of these new ideas can then start moving forward as, as capital becomes more comfortable with innovative models. I mean, I think it's probably harder to get even a, you know, a garden variety AL memory care community approved and through uh, credit committees right now and investor groups, much less something that's super innovative and a new concept. So I think it's probably going to delay those kind of things for a couple of years. Well, Chris, I think this is a great place to wrap up. And I think that we have covered a lot of ground today. So thank you so much for coming on Transform. I always like talking to you and hearing your perspective on things. So I I appreciate it. Well, Tim, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. And uh, we'll all hang together and get through this challenge as an industry. So thanks very much and take care. That concludes this episode of Transform. Don't forget to check out the SHN Architecture and Design Awards at shnawards.com. Again, submissions are currently open. The early bird deadline is September 30, and the final entry deadline is October 31. I'm Tim Regan for Senior Housing News. Thanks for listening.